1: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Dobre venture and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman.
2: And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Alchemy Podcast.
0: Tonight, we're going to talk about the significant and valued contribution made by the Jewish community to Prague and to the Czech Republic and culture as a whole here in Bohemia. We will discuss their far-reaching efforts to hold on to their faith and what stands today as their own legacy. Jewish Prague has a great deal of history to discover for pilgrims and tourists of all kinds. Prague is a favorite destination for Jewish travelers as well as tour groups that stroll along the old Jewish quarter here. Virtually untouched by time and war, the Jewish quarter still stands and still holds secrets and many traditions. I have visited areas of, of Jewish Prague, including the synagogues of the old new uh, synagogue, the uh, Spanish synagogue, Pincus as well. There's so many great places to see here. I, I really would recommend that people get a chance to take a look at them. Uh, it's awe-inspiring to see, see that there's a long tradition of the Jewish people here and it's pretty well documented Travis. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, some of the first mentions we have of them is Jews coming through town doing business in the ninth and tenth centuries, generally coming in caravans. Now remember that Prague is kind of a, a you know crossroads of trade networks and everything, and they were they were selling things like spices and silks to the wealthy, also exporting slaves from the Slavic East weapons, beeswax, and leather to the Orient, Mediterranean, trading with the Franks, Bohemia, Greater Moravia. When they did eventually, some of them started to settle. The first little Jewish neighborhood was um, called Vicos Visegradensis, which is kind of a Latin way of saying Viserad. It's, it's the other castle in Prague. So there's the Prague castle and Viserad, which is well, back from the seventh century at least, and that's so.
0: that's actually if you were coming up the Vltava River heading north towards uh, tor- towards Prague and Prague Castle, it would be the first thing you see on the right hand side, uh, heading north on the on the river, and it's a a, a pro- very prominent rock and. Legend holds it that uh, the Princess Libashe actually set her baths and her castle there that overlooked the the uh, the river of Latava uh, before things were moved a little bit further towards the, the left bank and Prague Castle. So that kind of gives you an idea where the first Jewish quarter was.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, the first Jews were Tosafists. Um, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but um, in case our listeners are interested, there you have it. Um, before 1096... They basically had the same rights as incoming Germans and French. Now, at this time, um, Christianity was pretty new to the region, maybe a century or less than two centuries old. And so it is interesting to note that they were just immigrants like Germans or French. But in 1096, a marauding crusader army, maybe 20,000 strong, were on the hunt for infidels burning plundering forcing baptism as they went and more murdering those who refused before the 1142 moravian invasion they lived sort of spread out everywhere like near the castle on the left bank near which is where the markets were uh, Visharad, like i mentioned and there was a small settlement where yosefov is now which is the jewish quarter but after the invasion they thought it best to kind of clear um, the main parts of town which were the markets and everything and yosefov is really low, right next to the river, which is the place that flooded the most. Um, so they kind of settled there, mostly to be left alone at the time. Now, of course, it's downtown Prague, beautiful Pajiska Street and everything. Right, but...
0: right. Well, not, not to get ahead of us, Travis, Yosefov is, was actually named after Yosef I, who was was very friendly towards uh, the Jewish people to basically allow them to come back after Maria Theresa had sent them packing. Uh, so that was that's something we'll get to a little bit later on in the mm-hmm. show, but the name has changed several times.
2: And the the oldest part of that town is on the corner of Kozy and Vezenska. Viz- and it's also interesting to note the very first Jews coming to Prague could have been Byzantine Jews, so not the later kind of Ashkenazi, like from Germany. However, eventually German Jews um, built the old new school, um, which... Before that they built a really one of the first synagogues was the old school right but the old new school which is on uh, Shiroka,
0: okay. Shiroka
2: and which at that time in Germany called the Breite Gasse which means like wide alleyway so that's one of the oldest synagogues in Bohemia it's gothic style during Ottokar II so under Ottokar II he enforced a law which is known as the Statuta Joerum, which I think is how you pronounce it in 1262.
0: What what was that exactly? Well, in 1262, uh, this this gave the Jews the right to lend money, pawn, and get get money back with interest. Uh, to carry the ability to carry out their debt without paying fees, which was something that everybody else had to do mm-hmm. uh, at the time when uh, their loved ones had passed away. It also gave rights to the synagogues to have their own courts, mm-hmm. and if a Christian—and this is really important—if yeah. a Christian harmed a Jew, he would have to pay a fine to the king, and if he couldn't afford it, he would lose a hand. So, yeah. uh, you know, that to give you an idea. This was a protection. This, these these new laws were protection for the for the people, including one of the most important protections was defense against blood libel. Now, Travis, right. what is blood libel?
2: Yeah, so people used to believe some pretty strange things. But um, medieval Christians had a very strange view of Jews, and, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but, but one thing that they thought, which I don't know where this belief came from, but they believed that Jews would actually sacrifice children, and you know, and sometimes even some kind of weird demonic rituals, and, and who knows what else. So basically, any time a child went missing, for whatever reason, the first Place the angry mob went with pitchforks and and torches and whatnot was the Jewish quarter.
0: One, one of those horrific sort of uh, stereotypes was the fact that Gentile children's blood was used in in making of matzah mm-hmm. uh, and food, for instance. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So uh, again, ridiculous stuff, but just enough to kind of get a crowd worked up into a frenzy. There. And I think that the king knew this, and he said, yeah. "We got to put a stop to this."
2: Well, there is still a fountain in Basel today. It's under. It's a UNESCO sight and it's it's um, on the fountain the it's this really squat almost like dwarvish elvish looking guy but he clearly has the red pointy hat that Jews were made to wear at that time in in Basel and he's just gulping down children he's just he has a huge mouth and he's got a sack full of babies and he's just scarfing them down now, now though, how is that allowed to stay up? It's anti- It's old. not anti-Semitic. That's, I think I don't remember the date, but I, I think it's like 13th, 14th century. So yeah. it's about this time. Yeah, and it's just ancient. So they um, they they call it the Child Eater, and they just they just leave any Jewish reference out of it when they speak about it.
0: But it's it's pretty clear. It sounds clearly that it yeah. has a connection. Well, I I I kind of want to don't don't want to give too much of a of a. Uh, a, a grandiose sort of viewpoint to the king at the time. Uh, we we'll talk about Ottokar II uh, because he really knew where his his bread was buttered. Because he got the taxes, like other uh, subsequent kings in in Bohemia and in Prague, he was able to rake in these taxes and these monies levied by the Jewish community, and it would would be really uh, a cash cow mm-hmm. uh, for for the the king the kingdom because the money would keep coming in. He didn't want that money to be to be stopped. Mm-hmm. And if he had all these problems with people having uh, issues with the, the the Jews of the time, then the money would stop. So he had to put some level of protection. I, I definitely want to mention that. I don't think a lot of it had to do with um, some idea of feeling bad for the Jewish population or, or trying to protect them other than the money coming in. Yeah. So – I, it, wherever there are rules, there are rule breakers. And Christians found a way to circumvent some of these religious usury laws and, and started trying to f- try trade more with people from abroad and tried to find other people to do their tailoring and leather work and, and glazers and goldsmithing. So the Jews still felt the pinch in a lot of ways. The Jews at the time had a place in society that was hard to describe in, to modern ears. On one side, they were viewed to be permanent servants, for their crimes against Christ and the crucifixion. On the other side, there was more of an Augustinian sort of idea that Jews were witness to the truth of Christ and therefore necessary and important, the Christ um, uh, story in the Bible. They were there. They were there. And remember, Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> so, right. yeah. so there is that connection as well. So you had these two different camps. They, they were both taxed more, more severely during this time, and considered to be personal property of the Holy Roman Emperor.
2: Yeah. Now, yeah, when you mentioned that, um, well, for for one thing, it's significant. Like at, at at one point, it was it was up to a fifth of the taxes income. There's another interesting quirk here. So there were. I think you mentioned that they were the personal, basically the personal property, personal servants of the emperor. I mean, they, the texts went directly to him. They didn't go through some roundabout way. And what this meant was that um, it got so quirky and weird that when, so when a pogrom swept through the town, a pogrom is, you know, uh, for those that don't know, it's, it's just anti-Semitic. It's a mob gets to beather, together and slaughters Jews. And when that happened, the king would get the property. Okay, so this this got so regular. Now, you know, why did this get regular? So the blood libel we mentioned, but another one was like the Black Plague. Um, people had a lot of superstitions against cats, so plague was carried by rats. But Jews didn't have those superstitions, so they had cats. So when the plague kept, swept through town, sometimes it wouldn't hit the Jewish quarters heart. Because the was, cats were eating
0: the rats. Because the cats were right. eating the rats. That's all
2: the proof they needed that the Jews had some secret deal with the devil, if it wasn't their fault, you know, to begin with. So, you know, right away, pitchforks and torches come out, and off and to the Jewish quarter, they would march. So, the king would get that property. Now, this got so regular that the king would give away houses before a pogrom would hit. You know, he could sense the stirring, oh, maybe a plagues coming through town maybe a child went missing in any case you know they would just um you know the king would give away a house with in the contract it would say it is yours in case the jews were to die or leave so it's like here you have a deed of the property the guy is still alive the the jew inhabiting the place is still there with his family but it already belongs to the next nobleman like you're just counting on the guy to me that die. seems
0: like that's going to set up some serious problems. Of why not knock off one of these guys in the Jewish community, and uh, you know see if you can get his his property faster since it's not going to his next of kin. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like you're putting a, a bullseye in the back of of some of these guys in in, uh, in the Jewish quarter. Uh, It doesn't seem like a smart move, but uh, again, very tense time here, and this led up to one of the horrific massacres in 1389 during Baslav IV's reign. This massacre uh, starts off with a priest that was supposedly carrying the host to a dying man and was stopped and abused by supposedly the Jewish uh, folks, and they started to throw stones at the priest. Maybe it was a small stone that was thrown at uh, at the priest. Who who knows at this time? Or if at all. Even if at all All at this point. This set off a chain reaction of priests throughout Prague calling for revenge. Which is not really a Christian thing to do, by the way. So our mobs formed and were starting to march through the streets. Jews were slaughtered with swords, and their wooden houses were set afire and burned basically raised to the ground. If any Jew was found out in the street, they were actually pushed into these burning infernos. Uh, It was a horrific sight. Very few women and children were spared, but the ones that were were forced baptized right there on the spot. All property uh, was brought to the king, and what really was the insult to this whole thing was that no punishment was brought to the killers whatsoever. Mm -hmm. In total, 3,000, they they say, were, were buried from this we don't really know if the number was much higher of course than ones that were burned yeah. uh, beyond recognition uh, right. but 3000 were buried that wasn't the end unfortunately because many of the of the gentiles in the in the area knew that the jewish people many of them had had pilfered away some of their money and 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 some of their treasures and buried them in certain places they not only went to some of the burned out houses looking for these "Quote unquote treasures," but also started going through these graves and became grave robbers. So, yeah. uh, just an absolutely horrific. Yeah, they actually horrific... had to
2: seal off the whole quarter. It got so bad. Yeah, you know? just
0: a, just a bad, bad situation. So, we give you an idea that these pogroms were just devastating. You didn't want to be around yeah. Prague if you if you were a Jewish person. And, and,
2: and another thing we didn't really get into, but but this forced baptism that might not seem so bad to someone, but you have to understand that, and it depends on the community here. So, you know, different times and different communities. But some rabbis would say that a forced baptism was very much like a rape victim. And even if if the person wanted to remain Jewish and wanted to be Jewish, they said, "No, I'm sorry. That's it. You're now baptized. You're no longer one of us." And they just would not accept her. You know, even if it was against her will. So, um, and again, it, this depends. This was this was you know one rabbi in particular's view. But um, so sometimes that was you know you survived some horrible ordeal and you were still shunned. So I mean it was you were just unclean from then on.
0: I, again, um, uh, again, Prague's history is at times the the worst of Europe had to offer, and also the best of what to, Europe has to offer. To be offer. fair,
2: you know this wasn't just Prague. This was this was all over. But right, yeah, this, right.
0: I, I think the the history of Prague and and throughout Bohemia, you're going to have these. Uh, these horrible, horrible stories, and you're also going to have, on the flip side of it, some amazing discoveries of, of scientific discoveries. You're going to have art, well, freedom, you're going to have freedoms of people, and we will get to that part. There, there were times where Prague was actually the freest place to be if you were Jewish yeah. in all of Central Europe. Well, here's Just um, not now. One one
2: flip side, yeah. Not, yeah. not at this point in, in um, the 14th century. In the, in the Hussite Wars, which was in the early 15th century, um, the Jews were often left alone. So they, you know, the, the reformers or Protestants had bigger fish to fry um, except
0: well and, and if I, if I can interject real quickly here you there, may not. There, <laughs> there, there were there were opportunities uh, there, there were uh, situations where some of the leading uh, members of the Jewish community would attend some of these Protestant churches during their services mainly because that the Protestants they felt had a closer connection to the old the old scripture yeah. Uh, of the Old Testament than the ca- their Catholic counterparts, yeah well I, I find that very interesting in my research for the show that 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 can't that was a uh, they had they were very strange bedfellows,
2: yeah, yeah no the the Protestants would often just re-examine the the scriptures and I mean that's part of what the Reformation was, so then they would re-examine these weird superstitions like blood libel and things and realize there's no scriptural basis um so but, however, in in Humotov during the Hussite Wars, a lot of the Jews actually chose death over forced baptism, and in Vienna, um, who were uh, Catholics, the Jews were all slaughtered because they were being accused of selling weapons to the Hussites, because the Hussites were tended to be more pro-Jewish. So again, the the reformers, you know, question, uh, questioned the Jews' place again and re-examined it. Um, but some thought that the Antichrist would have to be a Jew. Okay, but others said that Antichrist, to be pure evil, it would have to come from evil Christians themselves. Um, Jan Hus, in fact, had this view. That you know, so Jan Hus did not think the, the Antichrist would be Jewish. In fact, but he also had some strange views. That um, he said that before the end of time, uh, that Jews would see the light and, of their own free will, convert. To Christianity have this that okay well, there's always we'll going to be divisions leave them alone but they're going to see the light right and are always so. going to be
0: some sort of divisions I, I think uh, to say that that humanity with the religious tolerances have, have come a long way even though we still have a long way to go that uh, to live in this era would have been very difficult uh, if you were Protestant if you at times if you were Catholic depending on the on the, the year or at the at mostly throughout history if you were Jewish yeah uh, it would have been very difficult. But that um, yeah. leads us to 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 something that we 've called the golden age now mm-hmm. is is it really that golden because I, at the, at certain points i 'm thinking well maybe it 's just not so bad for the Jewish population but it 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 didn 't start off probably as as great as you would think with that title the Golden Age, because at the time when the Turks were marching their way through through Europe and they were uh, besieging Vienna. They uh, a lot of people accused Jews for spying for the Turks, yeah. and as a matter of fact, there was a fire in 1541 that damaged Heracni, uh, uh and the castle Castle Hill here, destroying the archives. And under torture, a Jew confessed, and the pogroms ensued once again. And
2: we mentioned this in a, in a different podcast about Rudolf II. They were allowed to come back in 1567, so this you know this it didn't last so long, and. We mentioned this in Rudolf II's podcast. This was his father, and and uh, had some laws to kind of um, uh, protect them. And and we mentioned that. And this would
0: be Maximilian II.
2: Right, Maximilian okay, II. Right. So, um, for instance, um, protection against the Christian guilds, because you know they had kind of monopolies in certain businesses. So you know that they they would have the right to do business and and make money. And and in fact, this um, got so good that the largest community in the diaspora was in Prague a very famous Jew of this time was Mordecai Meisel and this is Rudolf's um, I I think this whole idea is kind of funny like when I was doing the research I was reading something in German and I came across that uh, Mordecai was Rudolf's Hofjude which means the court Jew so I can just see him lining him up because Rudolf you know we love this guy me and me and pete we you know he's a he's a great character and because uh, you know he had this this whole mystical Prague thing i really do recommend that episode on him but um so you know you, you can just see him lining up his his court and, and introducing him to someone saying yeah this is you know tiho brahe my court astrologer and this is Mikhail sedzivoy my court uh, uh alchemist and here we have Morde- mordecai meisel my court jew
0: it doesn't have to, it yeah, it sounds a little off it, to my ear. It's strange. It? <laughs> I know. Uh, but,
2: maybe he didn't say it like that, but that's you know that was like in quotes, like he's the whole Yuda. he's the court Jew. Um, one of the rights um, that he did, uh, that Rudolf did, was he would give interest-free of loans to poor Jews. Um, he built the still-standing Jewish town hall and much more. Uh, he provided funds for Rudolf's war against the Turks. So so. Mordecai was fairly wealthy and actually supported the war against the Turks. Uh, There is some truth to the fact that um, Jews... May have been more pro-Muslim than pro-Christian because the Muslims all over treated them much better than the Christians. Well, and, and so. this
0: this this does have some truth, especially in the Holy Land. That I
2: wouldn't say they were spies. I mean, the, yeah, you know, the evidence can obviously get way out of hand. Right, this, but but, but I mean, if you,
0: even you look at, at when when some of the uh, Crusades ended and and were pushed, people were pushed back in, into Europe. Um, if you wanted to visit the Holy Land, you could do it. Uh, you were allowed to go down there and do that. However, you had if you wanted to live down there, you paid a tax. Yeah. If you if you weren't Muslim, so uh, there was probably some freedom to practice your religion, but you paid for it. I
2: would say, but greater safety. Um, it, well, like another example. So even this this you know most honored uh, Mordecai Meisel, Rudolf promised to honor Meisel's last will and testament. Okay, which was very rare at the time. Like we said, when a, when a, a Jew passes away, the property goes straight to the emperor. Or the king, but Rudolf promised to to um, honor his will, his last will. However, a few days after his death, uh, Rudolf had his house searched and everything confiscated to the crown. Okay, so mm, not not that great, but but. There there were others. Rabbi Lowe. He's very famous for the Gollum story, so you might have known him from there, and we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. Now here's the interesting part is that he's an ancestor of Louis Brandweiss, Brandeis, a US Supreme Court justice, and after whom Brandeis University was named.
0: I did not know that.
2: There you go. Interesting. Um, basically his reforms were to go back to orthodoxy. So um, Jews at this point were becoming very secular. I mean you have to remember they're a minority everywhere. So they were just trying to blend in and kind of, you know, taking religion a little bit more lightly and the, and their their laws from the Talmud and whatnot. And Rabbi Lowe kind of took a firmer stance and said, do not touch Gentile wine. Don't accept money from Gentiles for ritual services. Um, he basically he, pushed he, the reset button. Yeah. Well, yeah. This happened many, many times. But, you know, he was, he was one of those. He was maybe the most well-known at the time. And, and even later for kind of you know being firm on on you know holding a stance he went so far he said he considered the Jews formed and the Gentile not quite formed matter um, he wanted to go back to the source matter, the Torah to for studies, which again a lot of people there was many writings and many books you could you could uh, you know study and he wanted the Torah to to be above the rest as it as it probably should be an interesting thing about Rabbi Lowe he's obviously, Um, falsely claimed to be a Kabbalist. Now, this is almost definitely not true. In fact, uh, when we talk about Kabbalism, this was mostly a Spanish movement. There was probably some of that going on in in Venice. But Prague, there's there's very little mention of Kabbalah in Prague. I'm not going to say it didn't happen. I just there's no references, there's no sources for it. The, the reason for these stories and the strong connection is that he lived during the time of mystical Prague. Again, if you talk about Rudolf II, it's full of alchemists, magic, astrology, all these things. So Kabbalah fits right in there, but not with Rabbi Lowe. Along these mystical lines, now this should be noted that Rabbi Lowe was not a Kabbalist, but again, this story has become so famous that you can't really separate Prague and Judaism, with without recanting this story, which is of course the Golem.
0: If you come to Prague, you'll see shop after shop with with the, uh, this clay man figure uh, that's maybe got two eyes and a mouth. I, I have much. one. You have one. Uh, yeah, everyone's got one. A T-shirt, a bumper sticker, <laughs> a figurine of the Golem. Uh, very famous, very famous name. As a matter of fact, our listeners back home in the United States might know uh, some residual effects of this. I know at one point, uh, Time Magazine had an article said Superman and his inner Jew, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what? why is that? Well, because... The, the, the two uh, authors of the Superman that name actually were, were a Jewish-Canadian and a Jewish-American to put this thing together in the 1930s. And the idea was that it had to be a protector of the Jewish people as this fascism uh, of Nazism fascism was coming up uh, uh, up into uh, realms in Europe in the 1930s. There had to be a protector of the Jewish people. That was Superman, which was, a, a they say, a byproduct of the, the Gollum, which was a very focused bohemian tradition. Uh, from Rabbi Lowe. So if we take a look at Rabbi Lowe, yeah, we don't want to necessarily say that he was a, a Kabbalist. However, there, there are some people that say that he had some, some Kabbalist leanings. Uh, again, Travis says not so not so fast. But uh, this story does have so, some, some mysticism involved with it as well. So Rabbi Lowe was known as the Exalted One. He was beloved by the people uh, here in Prague. Uh, especially the Jewish community. He was a, a man of letters. He was a man of intelligence. He had had the ear of, of Emperor Rudolf II. So he really was established. So having this myth attached to him really isn't that far of a stretch. This myth is unusual in the fact that it's supposed to have happened in a very specific year, the year 1580, uh, there was a new danger brewing in Prague, and it had to deal with a notorious priest that was planning to accuse the Jews of a blood libel once again. So Rabbi Lowe heard about this, and to avert this horrible danger, directed his dream question to heaven uh, to help him save his people. And that comes back a little bit to a very interesting Psalm at 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, before one of them came to be. Now, this is a good precursor to what this dream was all about. He was going to make a clay man. Now, this clay man, keep in mind about about creating life other than the, the birds and the bees version that we all know of. You don't create life. That's God's mission to create life, not man. And to do so would be basically forbidden uh, in, in most religious circles, including Judaism. It can't be justified if, if this would be saving lives. And ther- therefore, Rabbi Lowe was instructed to try this horrifying task. He was going to create this golem with divine help, using Kabbalistic formulas communicated to him in his dreams. Now, again, here's that word, Kabbalistic. If, if Kabbalah was part of this or not, Travis, you say no?
2: In the story, yes.
0: In the story, yes. But yeah, yeah. historical... Rabbi Lowe probably is, would have said no. Nah. This is totally Kabbalah. Yeah. Right, okay. And,
2: but the, the actually the myth predates it by a good couple hundred years. It's just somehow so, attached to Rabbi yeah, Lowe because was, of his fame. it just fits so well. Okay,
0: yeah. so keep that in mind as we're reading the story, folks. So yeah. Rabbi Lowe had to use the word Shem Hamaforosh, which means the true name of God, uh, the true word of God, and which was is also known to just a few holy men of each generation. And we can say that because we're not actually saying that. Uh, the the specific word for God. Uh, But it was very dangerous to to pronounce, as you can tell that I'm trying a hard time with it. Uh, But the power that it unleashed could turn against a man who uttered it. So he received his answer in an order that is alphabetical in Hebrew, which means make a golem of clay, and you will destroy the entire Jew baiting company. This was the only part of the message that, that was really heard, and the inner meaning had to be understood to be very, very effective. Rabbi Lo extracted the real message by a special Kabbalistic formula. He needed two assistants for this, a Kohen and a Levite, a Jew descended from the tribe of Levi, and uh, who was of, of the priestly class and the temple eras. He also called his son-in-law a Kohen, a, a Jew descended from the ancient order of priests and his pupil a Levite. He explained that they needed four elements, fire, water, air, and earth. After a day of purification, they went to the river Voltava. By torchlight, they sculpted a giant body out of a river clay. The golem lay before them, facing heaven. The Kohen walked seven times around the body, from right to left, reciting the special prayer. The clay turned bright red, much like fire. Then the Levite walked another seven times around the body, the other way, reciting another prayer. The fire-like redness disappeared, and the water flowed through the body. He grew hair and nails. Which Travis is a little bit different from the form that we see that's put put on every T-shirt here.
2: Yeah, I don't remember him having hair and nails because that's kind of that's he's straight up of, that's gross. Yeah, okay? yeah, that's nasty. It
0: seemed a little too human-like, but I guess that's how, is how the tradition goes here. Then Rabbi Lo walked once around the body and placed a piece of parchment in his mouth, on which was written Shem Hamaphorash, the word of God. He bowed to the east, west, south, and north, and all three of them recited together. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. With this utterance, the golem opened his eyes and looked at his creator. They dressed him and took him to the synagogue, where he could get ready to start his mission. Eventually, the golem was, was no longer necessary after protecting the Jewish people, and some people say the golem actually went mad and became a danger to the entire Jewish community. So therefore, Rabbi Lo decided to return him to the void from which he came. He did this by reciting the Shem HaForash, and with it the life principle, and thus restored the gullum into lifeless clay. The clay figure had to be hidden in the attic of a synagogue, and no one was permitted to enter it again until many, many years later. Some writers during the 19th century claimed that the outlines of this giant body could still be seen there in this attic. Now, Travis, you mentioned before this podcast today when we were talking about the, the research for the show, that there was one particular uh, German that didn't pay heed to this sort of hands off sort of idea well, yeah, of the gullum.
2: Yeah. No, there's there's a couple interesting things to note here, which first of all, this is a great story, but it actually the first mentions of this were as early as the twelfth century. So way before Rabbi Lowe. But I think um, this this was this was kind of a famous version that someone wrote up. Uh, much later, and then attributed it to him. Well, you, you mentioned another in the Rudolf II podcast. You mentioned another famous story about about Rabbi Lowe, where Rabbi Lowe actually meets the emperor. I love right? this, story. Uh, this, this story. It's a great
0: story. If you can't listen to that, but if you can imagine that he, that Rabbi Lowe had such prominence at this time that he invited the yeah. emperor Rudolf II to his house for dinner, and when the when emperor entered this home of this venerated uh, rabbi, he was awestruck about the opulence. <laughs> yep. that, this, that this supposedly poor Jewish rabbi had uh, in his beautiful uh, um, residence and the great food that was offered to him. He basically really became enamored with Rabbi Lowe. Yep. And from that point on, the Rabbi Lowe had the emperor's ear. Mm-hmm.
2: So this is your cue to listen to that other episode. Absolutely. You need to listen great. to it. It's
0: fantastic. Um,
2: there's another, another person of note at that time uh, during Rudolf II's court was Joseph Solomon del Medigo he was born on a born on crete to a rabbinic family I like this guy because he went to university in Padua, at the same time where Galileo was there, and uh, Gala- Galileo actually allowed him to look through his telescope with him, something that he denied even Kepler. Oh, that who's... would have been
0: amazing to to be able to to rub elbows. Imagine, with, uh, yeah, Galileo Galilei and, and, at at uh, University of Padua, right? Yeah.
2: So I mean, okay. Kepler Kepler had some correspondence with Galileo, but look through his telescope, he did not. Nah, nah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, this. Del Medigo eventually settled in Prague and after many travels, many, many travels, was buried there in 1655. Speaking of buried, this cemetery is world famous, one of the most famous Jewish cemeteries, and in fact you can walk right by it and not even see it, because it's nine feet up. The Jewish quarter, they they gave them a certain parcel of land to bury their dead, and no more, for centuries. So when they ran out of room, which which it's not a huge cemetery,
0: it actually is it's relatively pretty it's, small.
2: Yeah, and so they started stacking the coffins, stacking the bodies, and stacking the headstones. So it is the cemetery is like up on the second floor, really. I mean, you can walk right by the wall, not even know that you're eye level with a bunch of corpses on the other side. And just the fact that the headstones are so stacked is also. I'm you know I I, I would bet you've seen a picture of it and haven't known. Um, Probably you'll put a picture up on bohemican.com. It,
0: it actually is up right now okay. uh, of, yeah. of, of the cemetery, and there's also a biography on Rabbi Lowe um, that is buried in this cemetery. Uh, if it, it, the, the walkways are, are rel- relatively very skinny, and uh, it's a little bit of a, a trial to get through some of these areas. But you can pick up a map when you get admission to get into this area of the Jewish quarter, and it will help you kind of know where things are. But I remember actually uh, being in in, in the Jewish cemetery, taking my son there as well. And and I saw some uh, Orthodox Jews uh, praying in front of Rabbi Lowe's uh, uh, tombstone, Uh which is there. And it really kind of brought it together for me to say, wow, people are making pilgrimages here. And I started thinking of the places that I've traveled in Europe that had significant um, uh, footholds of of Jewish history. And one, one place came to mind as the antithesis of what is left in Prague, which would be Warsaw. There's nothing left there. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I went to see the Jewish Quarter, and there is a little bit of a train station, some barbed wire uh, a, that is left as a monument, and in a, a grassy area for a park. And That's that it. and that is not by accident. No, all all by design. And and to and to see that what's left here in Prague, even as small as it is, several blocks in in a, in a circle area near, near the uh, near the Lutava River, it's just not much, but it's significant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really hope that if you do come to Prague, spend some time down there. No, uh, it is it yeah. is amazing, full of history, and uh, something that uh, I think you really need to take in, in part. You know, there there's so much to talk about when we talk about Jewish history, and unfortunately, the Holocaust in the 20th century. We can't fit it on this particular podcast. It's for another podcast. But we will kind of give you a little a snippet of of, of what we know, and some some of the stories uh, are hard to deal with, but. It's uh, something that definitely needs to talk about from from the uh, extermination in Terezin mm-hmm. uh, that's further afield, heading towards the north of Bohemia from here uh, in Prague. I've been there, and that's an, that that is a, a hard experience to see. But uh, that's something I think everybody needs to take take a, um, a trip on to, to really put that in perspective. A little closer to home here in Prague, where we're doing our podcast tonight, there is something very unique—a statue that many people don't see or really understand that's at the train station.
2: The main train station, right, on the first platform, and if you've ever been to Prague, and especially by train, you may have seen this and not known what it was because it's just a, it's a life-sized person holding a, a small kind of toddler in, in, in his arms and a young girl next to him, and then he has a suitcase next to him, and, but, but you can tell that the clothing the suitcase are a little old-fashioned, like, you know, maybe 1940s, let's say, and uh, 1930s, and that is um, of Nicholas Winton.
0: Sir Nicholas Winton saw... Where the winds of war were were, were blowing and in the 1930s and knew that the Jewish people were in trouble, so what he did was he after his his normal job <laughs> he would go home and start really working and he would try to line up English families uh, that would take Jewish children that he would try to smuggle basically out uh, of of Czech, of Czechoslovakia and at the time he had this network where he would gather uh, Jewish families that were would agree to this. Putting their children onto these trains with just a, a suitcase or, or two and head them north toward the uh, the french uh, the French border and then off to England to have their children stay in um, freedom so again, this is probably another uh, episode that we can do in the in the future on Sir Nicholas Winton, but his amazing efforts saved thousands of young Jewish children that would have most likely gone to concentration camps and not and not not been able to hear from again. So that statue, you would think it would be some some kindly check as we would say in in uh, in the Czech Republic and in, in the Czech language, some kindly grandfather image of of holding a child saying goodbye on the train. But what that was was. His efforts to try to get as many Jewish children out as possible. So there are legacies like that all around Prague. You just have to look for them. Part of town where I live in, right in the center, uh, there's
2: these. It's all. It's basically all the sidewalks are cobblestone, and it's it's um, all the you know even a lot of the streets where I live are cobblestone. But where a Jew used to live before they were deported during the Holocaust, there's a slightly bigger than normal cobblestone made of brass and it says their name on it and when they died and or when they were born and they died and that kind of it gives a story in and of itself because um like my uh, right next door to where i live there's two brass cobblestones you know a mister and a missus of of some name and sometimes you see three or four if it was a whole family or you know you just see one that says you know family so and so and so you you just you instantly get a sense that man something horrible happened here and that you know on the street that i live on like my
0: neighbors were deported well that's our program for tonight um we really we what we want to do is is have you contact us through bohemican.com through the contact tab and tell us what you thought about the show tonight. Uh, if you are of Jewish faith and there's something that we missed, or uh, I know there's probably some things we mispronounced, but if there's something that we could do to uh, uh, make a note on the next podcast, we would more than be happy to do that. Don't want to leave anything out, but it's a very long history here. So please feel free to go to the contact page on bohemian.com and let us know what you thought about the show. So our bibliography tonight is Prague in Black and Gold by Peter Dimitz. Dr. Ilya Arbel, uh, PhD, on the Gollum information. Uh, that We got that from the web, as well as the uh, exhibition Guide to Jewish Customs and Traditions by Alexander Putnik, Eva Kaskova, and Dana Kabanova. So tonight, we want to thank you all for listening. We appreciate your your uh, time with us, uh, either on, at home or on the way uh, to work. We uh, appreciate you listening to the Bohemian Podcast. Remember, please go to iTunes and su- uh, subscribe to the podcast. We really could use your help with that. And remember to rate us on that as well. Give us uh, the stars you think we deserve.
2: Yep, you really help us out by doing that, Get up the ratings there. Um, also, come check out our sister podcast, History of Alchemy podcast at historyalchemy.com. See you again in two weeks. Thank you very much. Ciao for now.